everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode, we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history. And today, we are going to be talking about the case of Daniel Rakowitz. So today's case, um, it's a bit of a strange one, okay? So this case takes place in New York City back in the 80s. And at the time, Daniel Rakowitz was living on the streets. And the best way to describe Daniel is that he was delusional, egotistical, and he thought that he could become a cult leader. Yep, he himself, he was like, yep, I'm going to become a cult leader. Daniel really was convinced that he was going to start this crazy cult. And then one crazy series of events led to another. And before you know it, Daniel Rakowitz ended up making soup from human remains and then fed it to the homeless. So yeah, I told you today's case was going to be a bit of a strange one. We have a crazy wannabe cult leader that makes human soup. So that's what we're going to get into today. So let's dive in. Daniel Rakowitz was born on the 24th of December, so Christmas Eve in 1960, making him a Capricorn. And the fact that he was born on Christmas Eve does come up again in the story. Daniel's parents were Anthony and Valma, and he also did have two older siblings. Now, his dad worked as a criminal investigator for the US Army, which meant that the family moved around a lot. Daniel didn't really have like a settled, stable home for quite a while, but the place where he probably probably spent the most time as a child was in the city of Rockport in Texas. Now, Daniel didn't exactly have the best start in life because when he was three years old, his mother died, which is obviously incredibly traumatic for anyone to lose their mother at such a young age. But not only that, his mother actually died right in front of him. So they were on like I don't know, it must have been like a business trip for his dad because they were in Paris and they were in a hotel room and it was just Daniel and his mom, Daniel was only three years old and his mom had a heart attack right in front of him and died in front of him. Now, Daniel was only three years old, but this did have a dramatic impact on his life. He did remember this. It was very traumatic for him, but that is not all. If that wasn't enough for Daniel to go through as a child, so just three months after his mom passed away, his dad got remarried, which is definitely pretty quick. I mean, your wife has just died three months ago, but that's not even the worst part. Mm -mm. No, Daniel's dad got married to his mom's younger sister. I just couldn't believe that. It's like, okay, getting remarried after three months after your wife has died, that's pretty quick. But then to get married to your wife's sister. I was just like, what the actual hell? So if you think about it, Daniel's aunt is now his stepmom. It's just weird. It's just so weird. And then if you really want to think about it, his dad is also technically his uncle. Mm -mm, no, sorry, no. And then following this, Daniel didn't exactly have a normal childhood, which to be honest, 
Like, what were you expecting? Because when he was just five years old, he started to have visions. He started to have visions of these three wise men, like, approaching him. And it was because of these visions of these three wise men that Daniel started to believe that he had these divine powers. And he even started to perform miracles on his classmates. And he was also heard saying that he thought that he was Jesus. Now, this is where I think, like, does his birthday being the 24th, like Christmas Eve, like does that have something to do with the fact that he thought he was Jesus? And Daniel actually did have quite a fascination with his birthday. And when I was doing my research, I truly couldn't make sense of this. So I'm just going to tell you what he thought. It doesn't make any sense. And I'm not even going to try and explain it. But he thought that his birthday had a divine meaning. And I'm just going to read out what he said, because yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So he said, quote, I was born on Christmas Eve, 12, 24, 60, which equals 96. I have 18 letters to my name. I was born at 9.02 p.m. in the 21st hour, which they say signifies the coming of Lord Jesus. So yeah, I don't have a clue what that means. Now, let's be realistic. This is not exactly normal behavior for a five-year-old. Yes, he's only five doing all of this. But to be honest, like, what do we expect? I mean, after the trauma of losing his mom in front of his eyes and then his dad marrying his aunt, like... Yeah, what is normal for a child that has gone through that? But because he was exhibiting this kind of behavior, saying he was Jesus, saying he was having all of these visions, he did get quite badly bullied at school. I can't believe how many people that turn out to be killers are bullied in school. Not that I'm saying that if you are bullied in school, you're gonna turn into a killer. I'm not saying that at all, but it's definitely a common theme. Daniel's dad also put him in psychiatric wards from a very young age as well. And Daniel was forced to take the drug Ritalin. He was forced to take this drug to address his behavior. And it's also rumored, I couldn't confirm, so I'm saying rumored, there were a few sources that said it, but I couldn't confirm that Daniel also received electric shock therapy as a very young child. Now, as Daniel grew older, his behavior was becoming more and more rebellious. And as he moved into his teenage years, it was definitely quite bad. Now, at the time Daniel was a teenager, his dad had left the US Army and he was currently a deputy sheriff in Texas. And let's just say that Daniel's dad was... Um, quite a disciplinarian. But after the years of being in psychiatric wards, Daniel really resented his dad for all of this. He just didn't listen to his dad at all. He had no respect for his dad and he just completely rebelled against everything that his dad wanted. Because he was rebelling against everything that his dad wanted, he did start drinking quite a lot of alcohol, taking drugs. He was smoking a lot of marijuana. And Daniel's dad, being a deputy sheriff, actually got his son arrested one time for marijuana possession. Which you know what, I actually think that that is a good thing because I've come across quite a few cases where a parent is a part of the police force, is a sheriff, something like that, and they end up just covering up what their child is doing because they don't want anyone else to know, which is obviously not the way to go about things. You should hold people accountable because how else are they ever going to learn? So I actually think that it's a good thing that he got his son arrested, but the thing is, Daniel's dad is not exactly a very good person. So he didn't exactly go about it the right way, if you know what I mean. And 
things between the two of them were just getting worse and worse. And it was getting to the point where Daniel and his dad were actually threatening to kill each other. Like it was so bad in that house. And eventually Daniel's dad just kicked him out of the house. So after Daniel was kicked out of his dad's house, he actually joined the army. He wasn't in the army for too long though. And it's not actually known what Daniel was really doing with his time after he left his dad's. We know that he did return to Texas after leaving the army for a short while, but then it's thought that he just kind of drifted around. However, what is known is that when Daniel was 22 years old, he married a 14 year old. Why? Why? I just don't know how that was allowed. I mean, I don't know the law in 1982 because that was the year that this happened. But surely that couldn't have been allowed. Like, I don't know. Oh no. What? Was there not enough adults in the world for you to marry? So yeah, not only was this allowed, but Daniel was also abusive in this relationship. I mean, of course he was. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but there are no innocent reasons to marry a 14 year old, are there? Daniel himself has admitted to the abuse and he has spoken about a few things that happened. And there was this one time where he literally tied his teenage wife to the refrigerator and left her there all day while he went out. And I think it's safe to say that his wife, I don't know her name by the way, which is why I'm not saying it. I think it's safe to say that his wife was pretty scared of him because he used to brag to her about all of the things that he had done. He said that he had strangled a sex worker, he had decapitated a dog, and he plucked out a woman's eye with a screwdriver. Now, whether any of this actually happened we do not know because this is all coming from Daniel and Daniel is very delusional and he doesn't always tell the truth. But I can guarantee you his teenage wife believed him and she was so scared of him. And not much else is known about the relationship, but thankfully the relationship did not last too long because by the time Daniel turned 25, he left Texas for good and he headed to New York and that is where today's case takes place. Now, when Daniel arrives in New York, he heads straight for Tompkins Square Park. And Tompkins Square Park is located in the East Village in Manhattan. Now, the park looks a lot different from what it looked like in the 80s. The park today, not that I've ever been there, but it looks like a very nice park. I've heard that there are some music festivals that go on, like it looks nice and serene, peaceful. Well, back in the 80s, it was a completely different scene. This was a time where New York was going through a period of significant gentrification. A lot of wealthy people were moving into Manhattan, New York. And because of this, this was resulting in people that were less wealthy basically being forced out of their homes. And there was a huge movement against this, quite understandably so, especially in Manhattan. A lot of people were left homeless because of this. A lot of people were angry. And a lot of people wanted to rebel against what was happening, rebel against the system. And Tompkins Square Park kind of became the center of all of this. There were hundreds of homeless people living in Tompkins Square Park. Pretty much the whole park was just full of tents. And there was a sense of community in this park amongst the homeless people of this anti-establishment wanting to rebel against what was going on. Not only this, the park became known for its extreme high crime rate, but it also kind of became the center for illegal drug dealing. So hopefully that 
gives you a pretty good idea of what the park was like in the 80s. And this is exactly where Daniel ended up in 1985. And he fitted right in. He had a lot of the same kind of beliefs as a lot of people in the park, anti-establishment, etc. And he just started living his life. He pitched up a tent and that was it. And Daniel fitted right in as well because he now had this new audience to listen to his crazy ramblings about his supernatural powers, about the fact that he was Jesus, about how he had this divine power. And let's just say that Tompkins Square Park definitely had a lot of characters, but even amongst all of these characters, Daniel stuck out. Daniel stood out and he was labeled as the weirdo. This probably didn't help his reputation, but he had a pet rooster, which he called Rooster, and he would walk around with this rooster on his shoulder, like he was some kind of pirate with a parrot. So like I said, Daniel had this new audience and he would go around telling people that he was God, literally. And whilst he was in this park, Daniel set up his own religion called the Church of 966. Don't know what is significant about these numbers, like I don't know. But he would often compare himself to Jesus and whilst he was going around preaching to all of the people that he could in the park, he would ramble on about crucifixions, about sacrifices, reincarnation and the power of Satan. And this is when Daniel started to have fantasies about starting his own cult. It is said that Daniel was inspired by Charles Manson, very good role model there, and he dreamed of having this little following around him where he could talk about his divine powers and his followers would believe him and follow everything that he did. But he didn't just have dreams of becoming a cult leader. Oh no, no. He dreamed of being president of the United States. And he even said by the 1996 election, he would be president. And I think it's safe to say that Daniel definitely has the characteristics of a lot of cult leaders. He has a God complex, he's delusional. However, I feel like Daniel lacks one of the key characteristics of all of the cult leaders, at least all of like the big well-known ones is that Daniel wasn't very charismatic because everything that Daniel was saying is no different to every other cult leader, let's be honest. But no one believed Daniel. Everyone thought that Daniel was a weirdo. Everyone was like, yeah, no, steer clear of him, which is obviously not the case with other cult leaders. Even though Daniel had the characteristics of possibly a cult leader, he didn't become a cult leader because he lacked charisma and probably intelligence as well, because a lot of the cult leaders are very, very, very intelligent. I mean, they have to be, don't they? I mean, they don't have to be, but you know what I mean. There was another very, very, very disturbing thing about Daniel as well, is that even though he loved his pet rooster, and I don't think he would do anything to harm that rooster, but the same could not be said for other animals because Daniel gained a reputation for killing animals. It is rumored that whilst Daniel was in the park, he had a number of cats and dogs as pets, but he would always end up killing them. Oh God, I hate to even say that. I know animals, oh no, I can't even think about it. But Daniel was claiming that he was killing these animals as part of some kind of sacrifice, which was a part of his 
966 religion. So yeah, that was what Daniel was like in the park. And I've got to admit that it was kind of hard to research what Daniel was like in this park because there were so many conflicting sources. I mean, there were some sources that were saying that he was this scary satanic cult leader which he obviously wasn't. He was definitely trying to be, but he wasn't. So Daniel made the park his home for the next few years. He lived in a tent, he sold marijuana to get by. He even gained a reputation for being quite the handy chef, which you should uh, definitely take note of. Often Daniel would prepare food and feed it to the other homeless people in the park. And then in 1988, things started to change. There was a huge effort by the authorities to essentially clean up New York. And that included moving all of the homeless people that were living in Tompkins Square Park. Now, obviously this did not go down well with the people living in Tompkins Square Park, which you can obviously understand. Because it's like, well, where are they supposed to go? They're homeless, they have nowhere to go. A curfew was brought in to try and prevent people from sleeping in the park, but this did not go down well at all because the residents of the park, there was a huge protest. And unfortunately, the police did not deal well with this peaceful protest because it was a peaceful protest and the police just charged at the protesters and this resulted in a huge riot and the police just started brutally beating up the protesters and the violence of what was this peaceful protest was just absolutely it was crazy and the violence lasted through the night until it eventually came to an end 6am the next morning so yeah that peaceful protest that ended up in a riot was handled abysmally by the police and over a hundred complaints of police brutality were made just from that riot alone. Daniel's involvement in the riots is not actually known. He was obviously there, but after the riots, no one was allowed to live in Tompkins Square Park. So he had to find somewhere else to go. And by the time we get to 1989, Daniel is living in an apartment with a couple called Sylvia and Sean. Daniel had first met Sylvia in Tompkins Square Park. He had actually sold her some marijuana and they just got to know each other. And after the riot, Sylvia said to Daniel, like, you can move into the apartment, like you can live with me and my boyfriend, it's fine. So Daniel moves in, he agrees to split the $500 rent a month, which I don't know if this is just me, okay? Because I don't know anything about real estate, especially when it comes to New York. But I just thought $500 for rent back in 1989, that is crazy expensive. And Daniel doesn't exactly have a proper job. He's just selling marijuana, but he's clearly making enough to cover the rent and any kind of bills or anything. Daniel had kind of landed on his feet. He had an apartment, he had a kitchen, he could have a warm shower every day, watch TV, and things were going absolutely great until Sylvia and Sean split up and both of them decided to move out. And obviously Daniel was earning enough to cover half of the rent, but he couldn't afford the whole rent himself, which meant that Daniel was left in the apartment, but he needed to find a roommate. And that is when he meets a woman named Monica Beerley. Monica was born in Switzerland and she had moved to New York to pursue her dreams of becoming a dancer. She was a student at Martha Graham School of Dance, which was a pretty like reputable school, but it was also kind of expensive. So in order to pay her bills, pay 
for college, etc. She was working at Billy's Topless Bar in the Chelsea neighborhood. Monica and Daniel had first met in Tompkins Square Park. Now, it's not actually known how they met. I mean, we could probably all assume Monica was maybe buying some marijuana or something like that, but it is rumored that they had a shared interest in drugs. Now, Monica was looking for somewhere to live and Daniel just so happened to need a roommate and he was like, yeah, you can move in with me. So the two of them are now living together and it is thought that at some point the two of them did kind of start up a relationship, but the details of this are pretty vague and obviously we're only really going on what Daniel has said. Some reports say that they were boyfriend and girlfriend. Other reports say that they were in an open relationship, kind of friends with benefits kind of situation. And then there are some reports that say there was no romantic relationship at all and they were just roommates. But what we do know for certain is that Daniel became infatuated with Monica. And according to Daniel, their relationship did turn sexual at some point. But Monica did break off their relationship at some point and after they kind of broke up whatever their relationship was Monica started to bring other men back to the apartment which absolutely infuriated Daniel and the two of them would argue about this all the time Daniel would not like the fact that Monica basically wasn't interested in him and it got to the point where Monica's friends were literally telling her kick that man out. Because Daniel, as we know from his previous marriage, he can be violent. We don't know this for certain, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was threatening Monica in some way. So Monica was like, okay, I need to get Daniel out of this apartment. And that is exactly what she did. She managed to kick Daniel out of the apartment, but the way she did it, she kind of went behind Daniel's back, which to be honest, I don't blame her. So basically what happened is that the lease was up on the apartment and because Daniel didn't have a conventional job, he couldn't sign the lease again, if that makes sense. So Monica, because she did have a job, was like, oh, I can sign the lease. I'll put it in my name. And this is what she told Daniel. She was like, Daniel, you can still stay here and you can just pay me the rent. Well, obviously that all happened. Monica signed the lease. As soon as the lease was in Monica's name, Monica was like, okay, Daniel, get out. And Monica gave Daniel a few days to move out and Daniel completely lost it. He was like, how dare you? This is my apartment. How dare you kick me out of my apartment? But you know what? If you actually think about what Monica did, she went behind Daniel's back signed the lease and kicked him out. That's a pretty shitty thing to do. But you've got to remember that we're talking about Daniel here and he's not a normal person. He can be violent, aggressive, threatening. So after Daniel receives this news that he's being kicked out, he goes to Sylvia, who was his old roommate to vent. And Daniel goes to her. He's like, Sylvia, what am I supposed to do? She's going to kick me out of my apartment. I've got nowhere to go. And Sylvia is just like, there is not much I can do. Like, I don't know what to tell you. And in response to this, Daniel just comes out and says, I'm going to kill her, which Sylvia didn't believe him. Like she just thought that, oh, this is Daniel. Like I know what Daniel's like. He talks a load of crap. He's very delusional. Like he says all of this grandiose stuff. She didn't believe Daniel, which to be honest, I can't say I blame her because Daniel is kind of that person that talks so much nonsense, but never follows through with anything. So when they start speaking, you're just like, oh, okay. 
Sure. Like he's kind of one of those characters. I mean, you've got to remember that Daniel walks around with a rooster on his shoulder. And then a couple of days later, Daniel talks to Sylvia again and says, I'm going to kill Monica tomorrow. Can you help me get rid of the body? And again, Sylvia is just like, oh, sure. Like, all right. Okay. Sure. You're going to kill her. She still didn't believe him, which now I'm starting to think like, mm, okay, if he's coming to you again and saying this, shouldn't you kind of start taking him a little bit more seriously? But she didn't believe him. She thought that he was joking, but she would soon realize that Daniel wasn't joking. On the 19th of August, 1989, Sylvia heads over to Daniel's apartment. She knocked on the door, but no one answered. So she let herself in. She walks into the kitchen and she sees that there is a pot on the stove. So she walks over to the pot to see what's in it. She opens the lid. And inside is a head. And that head is Monica Beerley. The head had been burnt on the stove from being cooked. The eyes were closed. Tragically, Daniel had followed through with his plans and he had murdered Monica Beerley. He then carried out the horrific act of decapitating her head from her body. But unfortunately, the discoveries did not stop there. So... For some strange reason, Sylvia decides to explore the rest of the apartment. It's just like, no, if you find a head on a stove, you get out. She then headed into the bathroom. Mm -mm. No, 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 no. I am sorry, but if I had just found a head on a stove, I mean, first of all, I would be out of the apartment straight away. But let's just play devil's advocate and pretend that I am exploring the apartment further but I would categorically not go into the bathroom because I am sorry, but nine out of 10 dismemberments happen in a bathroom. But she decides to go into a bathroom and what does she find? A rib cage, just a rib cage, just the bones, no flesh, nothing, just the rib cage. The scene of the bathroom was like a horror film. There was blood everywhere. So then following this discovery, she then decides to leave the apartment and she phones Daniel. I'm sorry, why are you not phoning the police? But she phones Daniel and she's like, what the hell did you do, Daniel? So then Daniel responds to her question and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Did you see? Oh, I'm so sorry that you had to see. <laughs> These people have the wrong priorities. He said he strangled her with an extension cord, choking her to death. He then stomped on her head 10 times he then went and got a knife and stabbed her 30 times. And I just couldn't believe that. It's like, wow, the overkill. Like there is so much rage and anger in that attack, in that murder to stab someone 30 times. That takes a lot of effort. And she's already dead. Like he strangled her to death. Why then stomp on her head? And then why stab her? Daniel then proceeded to dismember Monica's body in the bathroom. He tried to cut up her body into as smaller pieces as he could before then flushing the body parts down the toilet to get rid of all of the evidence. And then after Sylvia is done on the phone with Daniel, you're probably thinking, oh, okay, so does she phone the police now? <laughs> no. She doesn't. Instead, Sylvia's response to Daniel is to tell him, well, you better clean up the apartment good before someone discovers what you've done. Let me know when you've cleaned up the apartment and then I'll come back. 
I'm sorry, that is unbelievable. Not that Sylvia is responsible for Monica's murder. I'm not saying that at all. But when Daniel first told her that he wanted to kill Monica, I gave her the benefit of the doubt. I was kind of understanding because it's like if someone just blurts out, I'm going to kill somebody, you probably are not going to believe them. But now I'm sorry, Sylvia, you're not a good person. So then Daniel cracks on and starts cleaning up the apartment. Daniel continued to cut up Monica's body into pieces small enough to flush. He then gathered the remaining bones and skull and placed them in a storage unit. And unbelievably, it seemed like Daniel had gotten away with his murder because Sylvia never reported him. I don't think she told anyone about it either and no one turned up at the apartment looking for Monica either. So I'm not sure if Daniel was just like really cocky and confident and thought that he had gotten away with murder, but he started to brag to all of his friends that he had murdered Monica. He was not hiding this at all. He was telling pretty much everyone that he could. He told people exactly how he killed Monica and that he dismembered her body, that he flushed her body and everything like that. But still, no one said a thing. No one reported him. And it gets worse. A lot worse. Daniel starts going around telling everybody that he made soup from the stock from boiling Monica's head. Daniel also said that he ate the soup himself and he said that it, quote, tasted good. He then proceeded to tell people that he then fed the homeless people the soup that he had made from Monica's head. Oh, and I'm, oh, no. Oh, God, no. Oh. Now, I will admit there are definitely conflicting sources about the human soup. There are some sources that say that it's just a rumor. And then there are sources that say that this is exactly what happened, that Daniel made soup out of Monica's remains and then fed it to unsuspecting homeless people. But of course, we cannot say for certain that this happened. There is no proof that it did. There is no proof that it didn't. However, what we do know is that Monica's head was in a pot on the stove. And I just can't help but think, well, why else was Monica's head on the stove? You know, like he clearly cooked it in some kind of way. Oh God. But just the pure fact that Monica's head was in a part on the stove, I'm definitely leaning towards that it did happen. But who's to say? I don't know. But this is definitely what led Daniel to become so infamous because of these rumored cannibalistic acts. Because Daniel was telling pretty much everyone about what he had done, inevitably, it's not going to stay quiet for too long. And finally, somehow, we don't know how, but word had gotten to the police about what Daniel had done. So the police opened an investigation. And then on the 18th of September, 1989, which is approximately nearly exactly a month after the murder, Daniel was arrested for the murder of Monica Beerley. Police interview Daniel and he comes clean straight away. He confesses to the whole thing. And then I went ahead and did what I did. What did you do? The horribleness in which what I did to her. I dissected her body totally. I just started chopping her up, cooking her meat. Chopping her up? Uh, with a butcher knife and the aid of the saw. What kind of salt did you use? Just a wood saw. Where did you get the saw? From a hardware store. So you went out and bought a saw? That day, I went out and bought a saw. What did you do first? When you decided that's what you were going to do? Smoked a lot more pot. Smoked up like a quarter ounce of pot. What did you cut her head off? 
was like the first thing that went, and the hands and the feet were next, which I'll go them the proper way. Bust your piece by piece down the hall. And before, you said something about putting it in hot water? Yeah, they had and all over, do that? all over to cook her up so I could manage the meat better. The police asked Daniel, like, how did you dispose of the body, which he obviously tells them about the fact that he flushed all of Monica's remains. The police actually go to Daniel's apartment and pretty much rip up the plumbing, the pipes, everything to try and find the remains of Monica, but nothing was found. Also, you got to realize that we are in 1989 right now. Technology is nowhere near as advanced as it is today, because if that murder had happened today, I guarantee you they would have been able to find some sort of evidence of Monica's body in the plumbing. But in 1989, they couldn't find anything. The police then asked Daniel, where are the rest of the remains, meaning the large bones and skull? And Daniel just replied to them and said, I put them in a bucket and covered them in kitty litter. Daniel said that he had kept the bones and the skull to return to Monica's mom back in Switzerland. Um, I don't know if I believe him there, but that is so messed up. And the police went to the storage unit that Daniel had said that he placed the bones and the skull and the police found the bones and the skull of Monica Beerley. It's just like, I just don't know if I believe Daniel there. Like, I don't know, was he doing it in some kind of like sick, twisted way? Like some kind of like extra kick that he was getting out of the murder? Or was he trying to do it in a remorseful way, like giving the body back to her mom in some sort of way? But, well, I don't know. It's just so messed up. Daniel Rakowitz went to trial in February of 1991 and the case made a lot of headlines. And the headlines were like, man accused of killing and boiling roommates. Even though Daniel had made a full confession, he decided to plead not guilty. He was now saying that he did not kill Monica at all and it had all been a setup. Someone was framing him. The trial lasted six weeks and during these six weeks, Daniel went on very long ramblings about all kinds of crap. He was just ranting on the witness stand, not really making much sense. Daniel's mental health was also brought up in the trial and he was assessed by a number of psychiatrists. And Daniel's defense were claiming that he was not of sane mind when he committed the murder. And in the end, the jury agreed with this. After nine days of deliberating, Daniel Rakowitz was found not guilty by reason of insanity. In response to the verdict, Daniel turned to the jury and said, quote, I won't fault you for your verdict. The prosecution had an overwhelming case against me. I hope someday we can smoke a joint together. Daniel was then sent to the maximum security Kirby Psychiatric Center on New York's Ward Island. And even though there have been numerous hearings to reassess his sanity, Daniel Rakowitz, currently aged 61, still remains there to this day. And sadly, not much is known about Monica Bailey, his victim. Otherwise, obviously, I would have said something about it. I hate it when we don't know much about the victim, because at the end of the day, this is about the victim. Even though we concentrate on the criminal, at the end of the day, he has taken an innocent person's life. Monica was an innocent young woman. She did not deserve this. All she wanted was security and safety in her own apartment. 
And that brings us to the end of this episode. It definitely was a bit of a strange one. I'm really sorry if you were eating throughout that episode. Thank you so much everyone for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And if you enjoy the show, it would mean a lot if you could leave a five-star review. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios and I'll see you all in the next one.